Here we are in February, still taking things with a pinch of salt, trying to ask sensible, clinically relevant questions to provide you, our dear audience, with sensible, clinically relevant answers. All of this viewed through the goggles of a common sense perspective. My name is Andres Kubernet, and you're listening to A Pinch of Salt, a new ERA podcast series. It is an honor and a privilege to have as our guest today, Dr. David Goldfarb, who is a well-known expert in the field of kidney stones. David, welcome to A Pinch of Salt. Thank you so much for having me. That's great. I, I feel I need to introduce David a bit for all of you who might not be into kidney stones yet, because after this podcast, you definitely should be into kidney stones. So David is a legend in the field of kidney stones. I'm not sure you would like this term, David, but uh, that's who you are. Uh, not the only legends. There are others that deserve this title as well, but certainly right in the top of the top. Uh, for any of you who might be tennis enthusiasts, think Roger Federer, perhaps. Or maybe, since David is from New York, think John McEnroe, maybe. Uh, in any case, for all of us nephrologists who are into kidney stones, uh, he's a gift that keeps on giving, still in the midst of cutting-edge research, still teaching, doing podcasts, even after this large body of work that he has already produced. So uh, as a kidney stone enthusiast myself, I feel a strong need to say thank you, David. Thank you so much. I appreciate your kind and flattering and uh, extravagant words. It's all true. It might be extravagant, but it's all true. Um, so... The first question is a, is a general question, um, because we all know that kidney stones have historically been regarded as something that urologists treat uh, from the Egyptians onwards. And they've, they were also the ones who started going into uh, metabolic evaluation in the beginning. They also produced the guidelines still that are relevant. But this still, I think, is a field that naturally belongs more into internal medicine, discovering metabolic diseases, treating them. So the first question is, should nephrologists be heavily involved in treating kidney stone patients? And if so, why? Yeah. And you know uh, how I feel about this. Of course, the answer is nephrologists should be involved. And here, the part of the idea is that prevention is worthwhile. You know, there was a time where urologists made the case that doing repeated shockwave lithotripsies uh, and stone removal was perfectly fine. But we know that kidney stones are associated with a variety of other metabolic disorders, high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, genetic abnormalities. And those are things that nephrologists are particularly adept at dealing with and responding to and evaluating. Many patients um, have high blood pressure associated with their uh, kidney stones and decreased kidney function, of course. Uh, and those are things where I think the urologists very often would appreciate some uh, additional consultation. Um, and so I do think that we are very dependent on the urologist to remove the stones that are not passing, um, but then prevention is really worthwhile because kidney stones turn out to be very expensive, lead to a lot of emergency room visits. You know, the number one uh, urologic emergency room visit is for kidney stones. And so prevention really should be something important. There are urologists that are interested in doing that, but many feel that their time is best spent in the operating room, understandably. Um, and so I do think this is a great potential for an interdisciplinary uh, type of clinic. 
Yeah, and it's also, I have to say, a quite a healthy field in the sense that you have a very large population of people who have problems who are very motivated to to get rid of these problems. You have medications that are not really deadly in and by themselves. So it's for me personally, it's a nice it's a nice field to be in. That's right. Uh, I, let me also make a point. I don't know if there are any primary care practitioners listening uh, to your podcast, but I do think that this is this we need to disseminate this as well to primary care. There aren't enough nephrologists doing this kind of work. And it's always interesting to me when I talk to internal medicine colleagues or do grand rounds, that kind of lecture, um, they take care of high blood pressure and coronary artery disease and diabetes and atrial fibrillation. And yet they're, they tend to be somewhat um, not paying attention to kidney stones, you know, as something that is really preventable. Um, the kind of advice that one gives in terms of weight loss and blood pressure management and diabetes, those are sorts of uh, preventive therapies that people can apply to kidney stones as well. And that's that's definitely true. And it's a, such a large population, we can't do everything by ourselves for sure. So ideally, if you're a nephrologist, you probably have the capability of doing a 24-hour urine sample to check for calcium, oxalate, citrate, everything that you would do in metabolic evaluation, even though this is not inconclusively scientifically proven that this is beneficial. But most of us, I guess, believe that it's the right thing to do to to discern what type of the patient this is and to determine therapy. But if you're not able to do this, can you still help patients with recurrent kidney stones? Yeah, um, the very important point. You know, I have been uh, privileged to lecture around the world, and there are certainly lots of places uh, where getting a 24-hour urine collection is not so easy. Um, so that's something that I have taken into account. I wrote a paper called Empiric Therapy for Kidney Stones. And what I meant by that was without the 24-hour urine collection. And even, even here in New York, um, there are places where people don't have insurance to pay for their 24-hour urine collections. Um, and even you know a few blocks away in the private uh, and city hospitals, there are people who cannot get 24-hour urine collections done. So the empiric idea is that we need to talk to people about their fluid intake, about their diet, and even prescribing medications that can help prevent kidney stones that do not require a 24-hour urine collection to be prescribed. A good example of that would be citrate therapy. More citrate, it's easy to give, it's very safe, it's well-tolerated, it's inexpensive. And for most patients with kidney stones, it can be effective. Even giving thiazides, I think, um, can be thought of as something useful. It lowers blood pressure, it, it lowers urine calcium, it increases bone density. And my case has been that if every urologist who is adverse to doing a 24-hour urine collection because of any questions about difficulties of interpreting the results, if they simply gave everybody citrate and gave patients with recurrent calcium stones some thiazide, I think we would prevent a gigantic proportion of recurrent kidney stones. I, I agree completely, but I have to touch, because we're on thiazides at the moment, I have to touch on the New England paper that was recently published, which wasn't really all that successful, although there might be more, you know, it doesn't mean that the thiazides never work, but uh, do you have any opinion on why that paper wasn't able to show a difference? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, number one, 
it did show a difference, okay? If you look at the radiologic recurrence data, of a day, that showed that the 25 and 50 milligram doses of hydrochlorothiazide did show a decrease in kidney stone recurrence via radiologic uh, demonstrations. Uh, Gary Curhan and I have a uh, an editorial pending in C. Jason that should be out in the next several weeks, um, where we basically make the case that there's lots of previous data that thiazides have worked. And we have some data that we'll present in January at the uh, Rock Society, um, that's the American uh, Kidney Stone Society, um, that show that uh, chlorthalidone is more effective in lowering urine calcium in calcium stone formers. So number one, I am not a writer for, for hydrochlorothiazide. I believe in using chlorthalidone and endapamide. Um, I agree with Dr. Fuster and his uh, Swiss colleagues that uh, the previous studies are not ideal, but there's quite a lot of studies that show the benefit. We know that bone density improves with thiazide use. That means that urine calcium must go down. Um, and I'm confident that a number of my patients have had very good success with thiazides, taking it safely, effectively, inexpensively. Um, and so I think that is one study um, with a preceding number of studies that are positive. Um, so let's not throw thiazides out yet. All right, thanks. Thanks for that insight. Um, so the next question is that guidelines generally state that you should do two measurements of the 24-hour urine uh, because there is obviously some variability in the 24-hour urine, but in many cases, you get a conclusive metabolic abnormality from the first measurement. Is it then really necessary to do a second one if you have a convincing metabolic abnormality in the first? Yeah, the, I think it's an, an important question. From my point of view, doing one is good. Um, it's, it's something that patients will tolerate uh, and agree to. But in patients where I'm doing collections, and those are patients with recurrent stones, over time, we'll have more collections and we will see data. I saw someone this week who's done 10 24-hour urine collections. Um, you know, we changed this diet, we changed this medication, the patient wants to know if things are successful. And so over time, rather than at the beginning, we will get data over the course of a, a couple of years, um, perhaps. And so. If I think that giving more fluid and giving citrate as examples of empiric therapy are important, getting one collection for me gives me a pretty good idea of where that patient is, especially regarding their diet. I think it's important also to stress that when you do that one collection, you want the patient to be doing something that's representative of their usual time. You know, if people work on the, uh, you know, Monday through Friday and take the weekend off, they may have completely different diets fluid intake regimens during those periods of time. So you, you do have to pick what is most representative of your life. Um, what diet are you mostly following? Make sure you're not going that weekend to a, uh, a gala uh, yeah. or a, a wedding. Um, you know, do something that's generally representative. And yeah, there's some variation. And, you know, if you were doing research, perhaps you'd like to have multiple collections to be confident regarding um, the patients that you're selecting for your study. Uh, but for, for clinical purposes, uh, I think the empiric idea on top of a, a, a the, the first single collection will be quite adequate. Yeah, there's there's also some question about um, uh, about hypercalcuria, what the actual uh, threshold is or when to start thiazides because there are different 
you know, there there have been different thresholds and uh, probably the the risk of getting stones is not, you know, like digital in sense of zero or one when you go over a threshold. So when do you, if you do the 24-hour year measurement, when when do you give thiazides? When they're yeah. over eight, as some guidelines say, when they're over seven, or it depends on how bad the patient is. Wait, what's the seven or eight? What numbers units? Oh, are the eight is from the European uh, European. Uh, that's millimoles per day. Oh, millimoles, right? Yeah, okay. that's millimoles per day. So right. eight, eight is from the European guidelines. Right. Seven and a half for males, perhaps six point right. twenty. Yeah. So that's okay. So eight eight times forty is three hundred and twenty milligrams. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Um. So you're raising a very important point. Um. And it, it is my uh my colleague and friend uh, Gary Kerhan, um, who pointed out that within the normal range of urine calcium, whatever that is, um, there is an increased rate of kidney stones for higher values. So I try not to use the word hypercalciuria because as you're suggesting, there is no clear cutoff. Some people use 250 milligrams, you know, divide by 40, that's like six. Um, some people use uh, less than that. Some people say that there's a difference between men and women. Um, the reality is this is a, a concentration disease um, and the lower the concentration, the better. So when patients come to say, no one knows what to do about my urine because it's normal, mm -hmm. I say, it's not normal. You're making kidney stones. Let's make it more normal. In other words, even a higher urine calcium value could be lower, and even a normal urine calcium value could be more normal, you know, a lower number. So giving thiazides is not so much what's the number, it's a question of whether the patient wants to take a medication to lower urine calcium and prevent kidney stones. And so the value for me is, might be, depending on the case, five or six or seven or eight, really depending on how the, the, the patient's clinical course has been. You know that there are people walking outside today who have values of seven or eight and are not making kidney stones. Um, we don't treat those patients. The patients who are having five or six, uh, those are patients that need to be treated um, if they're having recurrent kidney stones. So I don't think there's a number that, uh, and, and this is very much what you've implied. Um, there isn't a number that says, oh, that's clearly a number that needs thiazides and anything less than that doesn't need thiazides. Exactly, yeah. So. Since we, we you've already referred to the fact that kidney stones are all about concentration, uh, sometimes you have very difficult patients where you give all the treatment that you have mentioned, and they still have a lot of kidney stones. Uh, and uh, you're pondering on what you can do. And because the concentration is an issue, if you if you stimulate uh, polyuria, like with Tolvaptan, which some have used, uh, maybe that might work. It's off-label, but what do you do with enormously difficult either calcium or cysteine patients? These are two different stories, but both can be difficult. Yeah. Um, well, for calcium stones, I think one thing to think about is the relationship between high urine calcium or higher urine calcium and bone density. So we know that there's a, a, an important relationship between calcium stones and osteoporosis. So very often I've been getting... Uh, uh, dual emission x-ray absorptiometry in order to measure bone density and thought about treating that by giving people bisphosphonates. You know, there, Megan Prochaska, who's now at the University of Chicago, um, has data demonstrating that people taking bisphosphonates have fewer calcium stones. And of course, they have better bone density and fewer fractures. Um, and there are data that suggests that bisphosphonates lower urine calcium. 
which certainly makes sense. If you're turning off um, bone resorption, then you, you would expect that there would be a reduction in urine calcium. So that's something to consider um, in patients. And very often we'll talk to patients about the fact that their bone density is at risk. And let's check that and consider that as part of the therapy. Um, again, if, if your urine calcium is normal, maybe you wanna take a thiazide anyway. If your urine citrate's normal, maybe you wanna take a citrate supplement anyway. All of these things have been demonstrated to be useful. You don't have to have um, abnormal urine chemistry in order to make those therapies. Um, but ultimately there are certainly, I admit, there's a few patients that I have said, well, you're having fewer stones. I haven't cured your stone disease, um, but you're only having one stone every couple of years. I think that's an improvement. Um, fortunately, you have a great urologist um, who's capable of getting into your kidney without doing damage. Um, and occasionally there are cases where we just concede and say, we've tried really everything. Um, of course, we want to talk to patients about their diet um, and people change their diets. You know, it's not easy to lower their salt intake nowadays. If you're uh, eating out, uh, going to restaurants and the like, um, eating processed foods, but people can reduce their sodium intake, reduce their urine calcium. And occasionally people say, okay, I can change my diet. Um, it's a, it's a hard concession uh, for the modern world to make. In the case of cystinuria, um, you know, I, I do have a large cystinuria population, and I know that currently tiopronin, brand name Thiola, is not easily available outside the United States. Um, I know that my friends in Brazil um, and the UK have told me that it's difficult uh, to get uh, Thiola. I do think it's effective. Um, I think it's an important medication. It's very expensive um, without necessarily a good reason for that. Um, I don't know what's your availability uh, for tiopronin. It is difficult to get, but it is possible to get in Europe in certain countries. But although I had some quite significant side effects with um, thiopronin, but so luckily in my smaller, much smaller cystinuria population, we've been successful just, and I put this in parentheses, fluid and uh, uh, urine alkalization. Yeah. You know, there are, there are prospects for new drugs. Um, they're not happening right now. Uh, and there are people interested in doing genetic therapy for uh, cystinuria. That, that makes sense, yeah. So uh, the sixth and penultimate question would be, if uh, you were to give an advice to a young nephrologist who would want to go into the kidney stone field, as everyone should, like we said in the beginning, uh, how, would, how would one do this if it's not a tradition in the department, if there is a low volume, if this is not something that's been done by your predecessors? How, how do you get into this field? Yeah, um, it, you know, it's shocking to me that there are many great nephrology divisions in the United States that don't have a kidney stone person. Um, and I point out to their chiefs uh, that this is a, an important deficiency. Um, the first thing to do when my fellows finish their uh, training and go off into practice is go locate the urologists and say, I wanna work with you, all right? I wanna have a collaboration. I'm not stealing your patients. I am never going to prevent so many kidney stones that you will have nothing to do. Um, I am going to collaborate with you and do prevention. Your patients will like it. Um, you will be grateful because I know you are uncomfortable when the creatinine goes up. Uh, I am happy to uh, help you. I know how to prescribe ACE inhibitors and SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah. Uh, and those are things that you're uncomfortable with. Um, you don't want to check the serum potassium concentration. And I like doing that. Um, <laughs> so 
I think working out those kinds of relationships with urologists really can be productive. Um, so, you know, I wrote an essay uh, claiming to be a euro-nephrologist. Um, and that means that I see more CAT scans and ultrasounds uh, and do all of that stuff that nephrologists are often not used to. Um, and I think some of my fellows have gone off and claimed to have a euro-nephrology clinic. I'm very proud of them. Um, they've done it in collaboration with their local urologists. Um, and so I do think this is important. I also point out that I like to tell my fellows, this is not some weird esoteric field, right? If you're a kidney stone person, you understand acid-base balance. You understand vitamin D and parathyroid hormone. You understand the tubule uh, and how it works. You're not really interested in anything um, before Bowman space. I mean, the glomeruli. Um, you're really interested in everything following Bowman space, the tubule. Um, and you become an expert on fluids, electrolytes, acid base, salt and water, and things that nephrologists do uh, or should know every day. Yeah, exciting stuff. Exactly. Um, I, I, it was also my personal experience because I also came into the field just, you know, just by chance, by coincidence that after a while you see that there's there's so much going on it, it it's never boring even though it might sound just like it's just about you know prescribing potassium citrate but it's not right um you know my my son uh likes to say to me dad what do you really do for a living you just tell people to drink a lot of water um and i <laughs> i say yeah that's, there's some truth to that but i do it really well um <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly that's yeah that i i i i love this field i have to say i'm i'm biased um, let, me, so, let me make one other point about that. All right. Okay. Because, um, the water thing as actually, um, you know, it's not uh, as much of a joke. Um, the talk that I gave at the kidney meeting of the ASN last month is about climate change and kidney stones. Um, and I really do think that nephro I have a, an editorial coming out in a couple of weeks called nephrologists should talk to their patients about climate change. Because part of my idea here is that, of course, we always tell people to drink more water. Um, but it's something's really different, right? It's the climate change has occurred. And you know that it's, it's, they say that 62,000 people died in Europe last summer as the result of heat. That's not just kidney stones, that's heat stroke, volume depletion. Um, but we really do have to say to our patients, yeah, we always told you to drink water, but this has to be something taken very seriously in a completely different way now, because it's not just about kidney stones now, it's about chronic kidney disease, end stage kidney disease and death. Exactly. So on a more uh, less somber and uh, sad note, uh, we go to the last question, which is a, a, a generic getting to know you type of question, which is what we want to do in this podcast as well. And the question is, which book, luxury item and two songs would you take to a desert island? <laughs> yeah. Um, first, I'm going to take a gigantic amount of water. All right. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's going to be, that's my luxury item, right? Well, we'll pack that all on my back and take as much water as possible. Um, when it comes to songs, um, you just have to know that I am a, a Bob Dylan freak. Um, so any, any Dylan, uh, that I can get, um, blood on the tracks would be the album that's got several songs on it. That will be my desert Island, um, thing. Um, and from a book point of view, um, my intention has always been to read Selden and Giebisch, their physiology of the kidney. That's the book that I would love to have on a desert island and finally get through all of it. I've read a good part of it over the course of my career, but um, that's my favorite um, renal physiology book. Um, so that very much uh, a desert island choice. 
Really? I don't know. I'm acquainted with that particular one. Selden and Giddish, is it? Selden and Giddish. Yeah. Giddish. Okay. Right. And they, that's not, there's not a new edition of that. I think it's probably 10 years old now. Okay. Um, but that is a two volume uh, set with all of the details. Um, and that's the book that I, you know, refer to at least once a week, uh, have to go look something up so I can appear to be up to date when I talk to my fellows. Oh, that's great. I have to check that out. And Bob Dylan, I just I just watched the Rolling Thunder review uh, documentary. That's insane. I just love it how he says that he doesn't know how he wrote those songs. You know, <laughs> right. I, I can relate to that. I think I saw I saw that documentary as well. That's the uh, the Martin Scorsese one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the end, when the uh, when all the dates scroll scroll up, I said, yes. November 11th, 1975. That's when I, that's the show that I saw in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, good for you. That That's part of history for sure. <laughs> uh, so I guess what Bob Dylan teaches us, which is helpful for doctors as well, is that you just have to have to go with your instinct, right? Well done. Yeah. Excellent. All right, David. So thank you for joining us in a pinch of salt. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us and listening to this episode. Please Check out our other episodes that are already available and stay tuned for new episodes, which will be released every second Thursday of the month. Goodbye. Terrific. Thanks for having me.